0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 8 of the Abstract Podcast. Today is a full episode where we talk about March Madness, skeleton naming, VeggieTales characters, nationalism, and a lot more. Stick around.
1: All right. Today's flavor of the day is Lemon Lime from
0: Waterloo, Sparkling Water. On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you got? Lemon Lime can't go wrong. I'm going high nines, maybe 10.
1: Yeah, okay, interesting. I probably wouldn't give it that high. I do like it, though. It, it almost tastes like a fake lemon to me, but it's good. It's that good artificial fruit flavoring. Yeah, it might be real fruit flavoring, but it, I don't know. Naturally flavored with other natural flavors. <laughs> that sounds super natural. See what I did there. All right. So, we have some really cool stuff, fun stuff to get into kind of before we get to the, um, I don't know, more serious content that is really fun. So, the first thing is this will be coming out tomorrow, which is Thursday. Right. And the March Madness tournament starts on Friday. Usually it starts on Thursday. No, it starts on Thursday. It does start on Thursday. Yes. Are you so, sure?
0: when this episode comes out, you actually will probably only have about six hours to fill in the bracket before the first game starts. <laughs> You need to get (laughs) cracking. Are you sure?
1: Yes. Dang. Very. That's tough. We should have done this last week. Okay, but the good news is you need to fill out a March Madness bracket. The way that you're going to do that is you're going to click on the link that is either in the show notes or that's posted on the social media where you maybe found this episode. That's going to take you to ESPN. You're going to fill out your bracket. We're giving Mm -hmm. you the opportunity to fill out your bracket. But the great news is the winner... Gets a $15 DQ gift card. So, what we're going to do Thank is you. we're going to have like this abstract podcast group of brackets, and we're going to be able to see who's ahead, who has the most points.
0: And it'll just be as the tournament goes on, you'll score by like getting things right. They did limit the amount of brackets to 25. So, you got to only be enter 25. 25. Yes. Well, there can only be 25 entries total, and the maximum a person can enter is two.
1: Okay, cool. So, basically, if you enter, you have a one in 25 chance of winning a $15 Dairy Queen gift card. Am I right in saying that?
0: Yes, unless you enter twice, then you have two. Then you have
1: a two in 25. And second place gets an abstract podcast mug, which there was a lot of debate about if that should be the first place or the second place gift, but it
0: was a very tough Ultimately,
1: call. <laughs> we placed it second. So if you enter two brackets and there's two prizes, chances of winning are astronomical, I mean, high, very high. So yeah. make sure and do that. Enter a bracket in our March Madness uh,
0: contest. Yeah, that'll be great.
1: Colin, who do you have winning?
0: I got the Zags. Undefeated. They've got great They're front really court. really Yeah, 26-0. and 0. That might change my answer. <laughs> <laughs> they got a great front court. They've got maybe the sixth man of the year. He's actually a transfer from my favorite team, the Gators. He transferred, which I was really sad. But He's playing solid six-man role. They've got bigs. They've got great guard play. Yeah, I, I think it's theirs to lose. Wow, interesting. Up to this point, I had picked Baylor, not for any reason in particular,
1: except colors. that I like the word Baylor, and that when I went down through my tournament, they were just kind of left at the end, so yeah. I might have to fill out a few more. I actually put one in the cold takes, which is like our sister podcast or oh, cousin podcast yeah. or however that works. Yeah, they did this as well, and so I, I entered one in theirs, but I didn't hear of any prizes that they, you could win on theirs, so... All right, so the next thing that we have is Colin brings this to us. It's called Name a Skeleton.
0: That's right. So with being involved in the science department here at TFC, I recently received an email that we have received a new skeleton to do experiments with, to observe. Okay, my first question is what body did this come
1: from? Animal? Human? Human? This is a human fish. It's a human. Yes. So it's a real person. It's also fake.
0: Bones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fake. Okay. Um, That's comforting. As far as I know, I think so. Because we would not be certified. I don't think. Um, but we may be. We would. I don't know. But I don't. I think this one's fake. But anyway, so there's a contest now, um, for those in the science involved in the science department, because this skeleton obviously needs a name. Yeah, And so we've had entries oh, for man. this. So, David, I'm going to throw some of mine yeah. at you. And All I'm right? going to pick the best one. Yes, which okay. i got to be honest, these were not original to me. Okay. But they're pretty fantastic. All right. Nicholas Ribcage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's that's funny. Because that Nicholas Cage and Yeah, Rib- yeah okay. Uh, I thought that one was pretty good. Um, Arnold Skulzeniger. Less good. Yeah, that was a that was a little, <laughs> a little lacking, stretch. a little stretch. My personal favorite, Albert Spainstein.
1: <laughs> Spinstein. Okay. Good. Got a few more good. there at you.
0: Okay. Scary Potter. <clears throat> okay. Nothing there. This one. This one's pretty good. I thought Captain Jack Marrow. <laughs> okay. I. I actually. I lied. Albert Einstein is my second favorite because okay. this one is definitely right. my favorite. Hit me. Are you ready? Yeah. Blake Skeleton.
1: <laughs> I don't. Instead of Shelton. Yeah. Okay. Blake Skeleton. Not <laughs> the reaction I was going for, but I thought it was hilarious. It didn't strike me as. Um, must have
0: struck you. Indiana Bones. <laughs>
1: That's pretty good. Yeah. I like that.
0: Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that might be my favorite, actually. <laughs> so, interesting. This is not what I had pictured you saying. I thought it was going to be, like, just names, but these are all puns. So mm-hmm. I like that. Um,
0: Thomas Dedison. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty oh, good. Man. Boney Juan Kenobi. No, I'm no. out on that one. Jerry Spinefield? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Last but not least, Bona Lisa.
1: <laughs> no, you cannot name <laughs> it to Bona Lisa. That just does not conjure good images. <laughs> Holy cow! Okay, could you read them all in quick succession? I had a favorite, but oh, I man. forget what um, it was.
0: Nicholas Ribcage. Okay. Albert Spinestein. Scary Potter. Captain Jack Marrow. Blake Skeleton. Indiana Bones. Scary Poppins. Napoleon Bonaparte. Thomas Dedison, Boney Wan Kenobi, Jerry Spinefield, <laughs> Bona Lisa. All right, my me. final choice is Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> it's clever.
1: You can call him Napoleon, also Bonaparte. It's just, it's good. That's that's amazing. I
0: thought that was pretty good. Okay,
1: we also have another, this will be fun, rather time. humorous thing to, to go over. Colin found this last week and I don't know if we were out of time or we just forgot, but we didn't include it. But and this is especially near and dear to my heart because I really appreciate the Holy Post podcast, mm-hmm. which is Phil Vischer, Scott Jitani, and sometimes some other people. They do a weekly podcast, which actually come out came out today. It comes out on Wednesdays. And uh, Phil Vischer is the creator of VeggieTales. So and
0: many of our generation would have grown up. Yeah, being VeggieTales just by was uh, VeggieTales. Right, it was so great. Loved VeggieTales growing up.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so someone took it upon themselves. Because I mean, we always think of like like you know like, uh, the characters from Adventures in Odyssey or Winnie the Pooh. They're just forever young. Right. It's like Connie. She just never grows up. No matter how old you get, she's mm-hmm. the same age. But someone took it upon themselves to imagine these VeggieTales characters that were all beloved like 20 years ago, where they're at in life now. Because they've moved on from mm-hmm. being just vegetables in Phil's show. That's right. So please, let them let
0: have it. All right. So if you want to hear where your VeggieTales characters are now, Let's start with Bob the Tomato. Bob the Tomato became a professor at a Southern Baptist seminary. Okay. I thought that was pretty good. Yeah, I could see Larry that. Larry the Cucumber, he got a neck tattoo and was hired as a spiritual influencer at Bethel. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> Junior Asparagus is now an ex-evangelical, frequently argues with Bob on Twitter. Yes. Archibald Asparagus converted to the Anglican Church.
1: Yeah, he's very... He seems Anglican, kind of
0: N.T. right ish Laura Carrot is a Proverbs 31 wife, but starting to become egalitarian after reading (laughs) Rachel Held Evans' book.
1: (laughs) Also arguing with
0: Bob the Tomato on Twitter, I'm sure. That's pretty good. Mr. Lunt is unknown. He was last seen at Chick-fil-A. Jimmy and Jerry Gord, they tried seminary, but they dropped out after failing biblical Greek, and they were last seen at a fire festival. I'm not exactly sure what that is. No, me neither. Um, Madam Blueberry married a reformed pastor and doesn't stop talking about how she makes the best sweet potato pie out of all the old church ladies. Okay. Paul Grape. Pograve <laughs> got back into moonshining and died of cancer. Oh, that is... That's rough. That's dire. (laughs) Mr. Nezzer is one of my favorites. Mr. Nezzer saw how much money Dave Ramsey was selling his house for, so he just recently started his own off-brand financial peace university. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Dave. (laughs) We love you. Uh, QWERTY. Not enough. Remember QWERTY, the computer? I actually don't, don't, but I hear it was a part of it. I live today. Take a look. Anyway. She got bought out by Apple and reads QAnon conspiracy theories on Reddit. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, the Pirates Who Don't Do Anything went on to become Mumford & Sons. <laughs> and the French Peas just started a true crime pro- podcast. <laughs> Aren't we all?
1: Wow, is that it? And that's it. Really brilliant work. Do you know who, d- who wrote that? I do
0: Mason Manenga. No wow. idea who it is. I respect I respect that. But pretty fantastic. <laughs> Does VeggieTales, is it still is it still a thing? Um Netflix b- did a thing for a while with them, really? and then I know Phil was back doing voices and some script writing for him again. So I don't know. It's kinda weird where he's working for the own company that he started. Yeah, but it's he's not strange. Yeah,
1: no no doubt.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. So on to something a bit less fun. <clears throat> The other night, I uh, was in downtown Anderson. Have you been to downtown Anderson? I have. Really that area. really nice area. Yeah. Uh, we were just walking around, got coffee at the Electric City Java. Is that what it's called? I yeah, anyway. I know, I, I know a coffee shop just in that area. stroll in the streets uh, with my wife's family. And there's a statue that's downtown that I've noticed before, but I've never, I guess, paid much attention to. But I realized that it was a Confederate statue. Um, this last time that we were walking down the street there. And, um, I mean, I don't think that's super unusual. Um, In the South, I've actually seen, like, entire parks and stuff that's just, you know, full of, like, Confederate statues and preservations of the Confederate Army, whatever. But this one was, um, I guess I was a little disturbed. And I wanted to kind of see what you had to say about this. But um, the statue... I don't think it was a picture of any specific soldier, but it it just represented those who fought with General Lee. And then there was this engraving that was down on the bottom of it. And um, it's a piece of poetry, and I couldn't find what poem it's actually from. But I think it's just kind of a popular poem. And it has five lines that go like this. It says, The world shall yet decide in truth's clear far-off light that the soldiers who were the gray and died with Lee were in the right. And, um, yeah, I just read that a couple times and we didn't hang around the statue super long, maybe just like 30 seconds or a minute or two. And yeah, I guess as I walked away, I just, that really actually disturbed me quite a lot. And I know there are just, people have all different sorts of opinions about, you know, what we need to do with, with history and with statues, people we don't really agree with anymore. But to me, it, It kind of struck me as one thing to have a statue that you look back on and you say, like, okay, this is a piece of our history. But then to me, it's kind of another thing to have a plaque on the bottom, Mm -hmm. a piece of poetry that says the people who fought to defend slavery, the people who fought for the Confederacy, were in the right. And sometime in the future, that will be recognized. And until Mm -hmm. then, we kind of hold out hope. I I was actually pretty disturbed by that. Right.
0: Yeah. No, I cuz i i know it's a terribly contentious topic but i i think it's kind of in general um similar to our conversations about language um mm-hmm. and censorship and that's a, i think like um context has to matter right and like what the statue's trying to accomplish and that's why i think like historical markers and even marking graves mm-hmm. things like that like to me like absolutely that's part of our history and will always be um mm-hmm. And so let's keep them there. Let's remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, but ones that are actively um, like romanticizing the ideals of that time, um, which is what this one seems to do. And I, I was reading a little bit about who the, um, the person who the statue is of. I was reading a little bit about him. His name is, uh, his name is escaping me right now. Uh, William Wirt Humphreys. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, He basically just was—he was a soldier in the Confederate Army and looked up to by troops, worked his way up in leadership, was shot a time or two, and fought through it. Um, And I think did some, you know, some heroic work for his side Mm -hmm. um, in the battles. But reading some of his journal entries and things like that, um, put in one quote from his journal, uh, for ages to come, slavery as it now exists must be profitable and beneficial in the cotton states. Yet, if not sooner, the remaining slave states must unite with us in a few years, and it is wise and proper to devise means whereby we can make their union perpetual and place a check upon the growth of abolition sentiment in their mm. borders. So I think, like, yeah. So know, I mean, part are- of this the soldier's charge in the war yeah. was about protecting the states' rights to own slaves and yeah. quelling abolitionist sentiment. Yeah, I mean, I think there are
1: um, people— you can con- try to construe the argument that, well, it wasn't just about slavery. <laughs> yeah. When you read quotes like that and
0: I think it really was yeah, about slavery. Yeah, in, in both the statues quote yeah. and his own life, the cause was preserving a way of life that dehumanized um, another race. So in that way, I would be glad to see it gone. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it just struck me as like if, if I walk into a museum— mm-hmm. A, even like a Confederate history museum or just right. a history museum, I would expect to see these remnants and preservations of the past. But when I walk down Main Street in, mm-hmm. a, in a city and it's in front of a, like, yeah, the, and it's like right by the courthouse. Right. And so it's, you know, the state or the government or whatever is paying for its erection and for it to be maintained and stuff like that. It's a state sponsored statue. Making the claim that the people who fought for slavery were actually in the right, and we're just waiting for the day when that's going to be realized. Right. Like it made me wonder what it's like to be a black person and walk down the street and see that. Mm-hmm. I mean that that just seemed pretty strange to me. But anyway, so I was as I was kind of doing some digging and looking into this, I came across a petition that um, has been in circulation for some time now. Um, you can find a link to it on our Google document, which is in the show notes. And uh, there was an article titled, Over 35,000 Signed Petition for Chadwick Boseman Statue to Replace the Confederate Memorial in His Hometown. So Which, I didn't even realize this until just now. I didn't realize it either. Yeah, like, Chadwick Boseman. Chadwick Boseman's from Anderson. <laughs> He's the guy who played in Black the Panther, Black, Black, Black
0: Panther. Jackie Robinson. Um... I'm not really- Yeah, like a really know. big yeah. top-tier actor. And like a from fantastic Anderson. human being as well, yeah. from, from what I know of it. And
1: recently died of cancer. So anyway, this petition had 35,000 signatures. Well, I clicked on the link and went to check on the petition, and it's up to 109,000 signatures. So that's a lot. Um, the population of Anderson City is 26,000 people, 75,000 in the surrounding area. That's in 2010, so it's probably a bit mm-hmm. more than that now, but- 109,000 people have signed this petition. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if it goes anywhere. I was also reading um, kind of what the mayor had to say about this. And kind of what it seemed to me was like it's. he was just saying, like, I would be open to replacing the plaque at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Not really interested in tearing down the statue, I guess. But, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what or if anything um, happens. But, yeah, I, I find that disturbing. And I would, I would really like to see that statue for sure come
0: down or at least change the plaque. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think with even what we've read about who the soldier was too, I would be fine with, with that coming down um as well. So yeah, that was that was interesting to read about. Um but yeah, the the thing that blew my mind was that Jaiwood Bozeman from Anderson.
1: Yeah, who knew? I don't I, know, I don't know why I didn't know that.
0: Uh all right, what do we got next? Javen? how's the uh catch us up on the statement of all things faith related. <laughs> yeah, I thought it'd be fun we could just have have an episode where
1: you just ask me that yeah. the question to anything and I would just answer it from my statement of faith.
0: Oh, we need to do that. It'll be like a mock interview. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare you. We're going to have a real interview.
1: Yeah, so the statement of faith is um it's coming along, man. It's due on Friday and oh, this wow. is okay. Wednesday. So I basically have <laughs> tomorrow to go back and kind of make final changes all the content is there, I think, it's mm-hmm. or almost. I'm still working on the part about hell. Hell is tough, man. <laughs> hell is tough doctrine it is. for me, anyway, to, to put into words and even yes. to find what I believe about it. I think I'm at about 9,000 words. So, I mean, it is hefty. It is yeah. a hefty piece of writing. So what? Yeah, You said 17 pages? Yeah, single spaced. Yeah. So <laughs> pretty long. I have fun professors. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I think it should be shorter. So part of my work tomorrow is going to be Making it a bit more concise. I was gonna pull it up here because, not that we're gonna settle it in a few minutes, but there's there's a few issues that I'm I'm just really, really tough. One of them is the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And please don't call me a heretic because that's a tough issue for me. That actually means what how you describe the process of inspiration and whether or not Scripture is inerrant or infallible and yeah. the language you want to put to yeah. that. It's it's actually pretty difficult in my estimation. yeah. Once you're
0: actually trying to get like really precise. You, it's difficult. Yeah, it's one to thing
1: listen. to quote unquote believe the Bible, but it's quite another thing to say <laughs> what that actually means. Yeah,
0: and even how that worked between, like, how did the authors know what to write? What? Yeah, part of it's inspired. What about the dates that don't line up? What about misspellings and names that refer to the wrong people? Yeah, and, and
1: historical claims that aren't necessarily true. Right. Or like,
0: yeah. Or, cosmolo- or cosmological ones like like how the yeah. earth is constructed. Or, yeah.
1: Does the Bible make scientific claims? Right. That's kind of one right. of the things my argument hinges on is that the Bible is not making scientific claims. Apologies to Ken Ham. Um, another thing is kind of related is this idea Carl Barth really championed about um, how God reveals himself to us. And so mm. Barth would say that that Bible that's laying on your desk is actually... Um, it it's not like God's word revealed. The revelation happens in the encounter. So he would say the revelation of God's word happened as Paul was writing it. And then what he wrote is a representation of that. And so it's a bit of a, bit of a different thing. Barth is okay. more, and I don't know a lot about this, but he's more he's um, what, existential 50s? and like neo-orthodox. Yeah. 50s, uh, Maybe he he, or, is he reformed thinker I forget yeah I don't know a ton about him know. we were talking about him in class today so and I've been reading yeah so it's, it's the idea that the the revelation happens in the individual's encounter so and then that encounter is is written down and preserved for us so like the Bible is trustworthy and it's the authority of our lives but he would say that the like the actual word of God is what happens in actually God giving the word to the the person who wrote it down. Anyway, it's a difference there. Okay. That's actually pretty interesting. So And I'm not really sure what to think of that either. So
0: is that different from saying that the authority and you could say word as well? Like is it the same as saying that it's what God communicated to Paul or whoever was writing mm-hmm. that that manuscript and then the way that we utilize scripture or live into that quote unquote word of god is Mm -hmm. by accurately understanding what the author intended it to come across as or what they experienced as the revelation of god for the right i don't know if that question yeah no i think that's that's kind of at the heart of the
1: the question though okay and i i don't know i don't either (laughs) (laughs) yeah interesting uh kind of feel to think about though for sure i mean bart bart was really influenced by kierkegaard and kierkegaard's whole thing not his whole thing but so he's a much, it's about the individual's encounter with the truth and the individual's choice. You have to make the authentic choice to believe. And so it's not about it being proved through science right. for you. It's about that encounter. And so I think Barth is kind of applying that sort of principle to God inspiring
0: the writers to write. Fascinating. Yeah, it'd
1: be fun to have someone who actually really knew what uh, they are talking say, about. I feel like I have to, uh,
0: <laughs> nothing... Uh... Of any merit to say, yeah, on that and one. then it is
1: so I just kind of underlined the ones that I'm not. I'm having a little tougher time with another one is communion. Um, the question is explain the nature and purpose of the following. So communion, um, and then <laughs> this is an issue. It's it's hard to answer questions about issues that you you didn't right. really know were even <laughs> issues. Um, church leadership and government. So the yeah. question is, choose and defend one type of church government, and the options they give are hierarchical, episcopal. Presbyterian,
0: Congregationalist, etc. So, what is the difference between Episcopalianism and hierarchical church structure? That kind of raised in
1: my mind as I read them off. I'm not sure because kind of in my limited research that I was doing, it seemed it was Episcopal, which is more... Help me to find these. Episcopal is more like you have I'll a try. bishop who's like in charge of the church, right. and it's more like authority and power vested in one person. Yes, and you see
0: that because the Episcopal church has the and and that oh? authority is like it's in succession. I think is how you could say it from how I understand it. So like, what does that mean? Well, I think it's in like there's like a line, not necessarily like a family line, but it's it's a line of the priesthood instead of there being like um, congregational democracy about how you elect your like, okay. parish or, or clergy or whatever. I think I, I could be totally wrong on that.
1: What 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 do we say that was? Episcopalian? Episcopalianism. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, is the rule of the church by monarchical bishops? That is, one man may govern those under him, and he need not be chosen by the people to be their leader, but can be appointed by a higher agency. Authority thus rests in one human priest at the top
0: and is communicated yeah. to subordinates. So basically, the power is vested in one person. So. Right. And that one person is um, put into that position by basically the hierarchy, not not the, the, people. Dem- not the people. It's not democracy, right. for sure.
1: Okay, so you have that one, and then you have the Presbyterian style of church government. And this is the one that um, I'm leaning towards myself. Presbyterianism is the rule of the church by multiple elected leaders, not the dictates of one man, nor those of the whole congregation. And that's mm-hmm. an important distinction. These leaders must be chosen by the people from among themselves, men to whom they are willing to vow submission. Men
0: or women, probably, depending uh, on Depends. PCUSA, uh, that conference would be men and women. Yeah. Presbyterian Church, uh, it's men. I'm as, far as there as was a split at that. There was. Yeah but also examined and confirmed by
1: the present governing board of elders in the congregation or regional body of the elders. Presbyterians, I was, yeah. I was reading about this, they have just, it's like a whole network and system. It's actually pretty cool how it functions. Yeah. But you got like I've, your diocese and yep. people under that, and it's all quite structured all the way from the little lay people mm-hmm. to the top.
0: Right. <laughs> and I, I definitely would have huge sympathies for how how they organize, so I'm, yeah, I'm with you. makes definitely, a lot of sense, I, mean, I think. It, and it's all
1: it, kind of like um, congregations. What I thought was interesting, there was a graphic where you had like five churches, mm-hmm. and they were all kind of linked like regionally to some sort of authority structure over them. Right. So it's not like just a church is out here on its own, and it's also not like they're being dominated by one person. Right, But it's like they kind of govern themselves, and they have elders themselves, but they're also responsible to the churches.
0: Yeah. Like, is it called the diocese? Diocese, diocese. I think, yeah, yeah. And they like that's a historical denomination too, where you know they have they're still united around like uh, the Westminster Confession of I think that was sixteen eleven, and so you have like this uniting kind of constitutional document yeah. th- that it all centers back around. Um So so you've got like okay, that. where
1: are we at? Hierarchical Episcopal um, Presbyterian and then Congregationalist. So then Congregationalist is more.
0: Which would probably be like. Probably most churches you interact with, I would imagine, somewhat. Yeah, well, at least, at least your free churches, free or like churches. non-denominational ones.
1: Okay, yeah, because I was kind of trying to think through. I would think the church that my Alicia and I go to. I mean, it's not a Presbyterian church. But it's not like the congregation really votes mm-hmm. on stuff either. Anyway, congregationalism is the rule of the church by every member and the independence of every congregation from all others. So it's just more of this autonomy thing. Yep. Authority now rests with the many at the bottom. Excuse me. So it's more of a democratic system. Um, any given decision which the church may make, every member within the congregation has the same authority as every other. Ruling boards are simply an administri- administrative convenience whose decisions can be overthrown by the congregation as a whole. Moreover, no individual congregation is subject to external jurisdiction. Associations of churches are voluntary, and they have no independent power over the internal affairs of their church, their member churches. So now that I read this, no, this is definitely not how the church we go to is. There's like a leadership team, and mm-hmm. another team that makes yeah. a lot of the calls for the church. But this is the church, like the church I grew up in. And when I was out in Oregon, the church I lived in there, I think this is more... I mean, I think this is typical of Anabaptist churches, isn't it? Or did you also, was Anabaptist just another
0: so system altogether? Historically, Anabaptism has been more of a type of, um, a, from what I could find, a like pseudo-Presbyterian form or like a modified Presbyterian okay. form. Um, so like it is a form of governance emerged as... the uh, or wait, let's see here. The primary church unit is the conference of churches. Um, so instead of your diocese, I think you'd have a conference. Mm-hmm. And the conference serves. Yeah, like serves, BMA or something. Yeah. yeah. So the conference serves as the authority for all churches on matters of theology, common mission, ordination of ministers, and interchurch relations. Uh, the local church is autonomous on local church matters. A bishop or elder system provided leadership within the conference and in local churches. The role of the bishop or elder was not rooted in the Catholic or Anglican tradition of succession, but in the pastoral letters in like Titus 1 5. Um, Senior ministers and leaders were chosen from within the congregation. So interesting. Yeah. It's very similar to Presbyterianism, but kind of splitting hairs. But I kind of think like your congregationalism, I think that would be fairly typical of like a non-denominational church or like a okay. free church that's what i would imagine but yeah and i, I mean don't i like, don't
1: think you can you definitely can't group all anabaptist churches into the same one because right. some of them are going to be as described anabaptist and some are going to be heavily congregationalist yeah so it just i think from church to church it's just right. kind of i don't know i think a lot of the people where you came from or what you want to see drives the vision of how you create the Mm. leadership structure and so that plays out but it's really interesting
0: how it works out the one thing that because like yeah like within anabaptist or baptist churches whatever they're going to fluctuate you know there's there's a lot of diversity with how church structure is organized but that is the one thing that i actually really like about presbyterianism i don't know much about it but thinkers that i really admire who are presbyterians Mm -hmm who've done lots of research in it, talk of the consistency from church to church um, and how that Mm. because of how tightly they're tied together, really all back to confessions and catechisms of their faith um, that are kind of their orienting principle for all leadership of all churches. Um, yeah, so if you go
1: across the country and go to a Presbyterian church, they're all it's going to feel really yeah. familiar when you walk in. It's just going to be different faces performing the roles. Right. And I mean, they probably right. have different goals and vision too, but right. yeah.
0: But they're going to be really subtle ones, uh, maybe and not as pronounced. Is as that right is that line. a pretty high church tradition,
1: Presbyterian churches? Like um, liturgical? It
0: would, be, it would be fairly liturgical, depending. I think, I
1: think we were at a service. I think we played a, some songs one time at a Presbyterian okay. church in like Oregon or Washington. And like it was really... Like, they wanted to know, like, how many songs, what songs, yeah.
0: right here it goes. And it was like, yeah,
1: we're fitting you into our liturgy, basically.
0: Yeah. So I think it would be fairly high church, but I don't think it would be. I'm sure it depends. Because even, like, I mean, even, like, something like Church of the Redeemer in New York City, um, Tim Keller, where Tim Keller used to be pastor at, I don't know that, that would be necessarily high church. I think that would be more low church, but maybe medium church. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Tim Keller. Yeah. There's our caveat. So Tim Keller writes these quarterlies that are always worth a read. Um, Gospel in Life, which is kind of, I think, like a fellowship of Presbyterian church planting that he does or leads. Um, but anyway, so read all his quarterlies. They're really good. But his most recent one was really fascinating in which he did a, he always does, he does, most of the time he does book reviews. So his one this time was a book review on the topic of Christian nationalism. And this was a book that, Javen you actually just started reading, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Big shout out to one of our faithful listeners who heard, it was like two weeks ago, we just kind of shouted out like, oh, because we were giving the book away. Yes. And I said, if I could pick any book that I just wanted to show up at my door, I would pick Taking America Back for God by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry. And so my mother, faithful listener, just kindly bought this book and gave it to me. So that was really nice of her and for sure. I'm really enjoying reading it, but I'm only like 20 pages yeah. in
0: And so these are two sociologists, correct? Yes. Um, Social researchers. Yeah. Whitehead
1: was at Clemson University. Yeah. He either still is or just moved on.
0: But I really liked, like, it made it a really fascinating approach um, to the issue, which I really liked. Um, Which is
1: Christian nationalism. (laughs) Right. Which we should define. Because right. that's one of the interesting things about the study.
0: Yeah, because kind of, especially after the Capitol riots, I don't know, like everybody had a hot take on Christian nationalism and yeah. it kind of wore me out because everything was a Christian nationalist, but yet, I mean, that was kind of on the one side you saw everything was Christian nationalism. And on the other side, there was kind of the no true Scotsman kind of thing where like, well, those weren't actually <laughs> Christians <laughs> right. um, kind of thing. Or like a true Christian wouldn't have been there so on and so forth. Anyway, Anyway, we've been there, but not done those things. Yeah. 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 Um, So they spent the beginning of the time and, and Tim Keller summarizes three main points of their definition of Christian nationalism. And let's just work through these and say what we think about them. So his first point that he summarizes from the work of uh, Samuel Perry, Andrew Whitehead is that Christian nationalism is a fusion of American identity with Christianity preferably Protestant, with race, white, nativity, native, how do you say that? Yeah, nativity. Nativity, mm-hmm. okay. Born in the United States and as political ideology, social and fiscal conservatism, Put simply, it is a view that you cannot be a real American if you are a Muslim or a Jew, an immigrant, a non-white Christian, or even a political liberal. Christian nationalists believe that the federal government should declare the U.S. to be a Christian nation, push Christian values into law, and allow the display of Christian symbols and the offering of Christian prayer in public spaces. So, for example, Christian nationalists would be happy to have new churches constructed in their community, but would want the government to forbid the building of mosques.
1: Yeah. So to this point, I think put really simply, it's gung-ho about freedom of religion as long as the Christian religion. <laughs> kind of right. the
0: uh, freedom of religion for me, but not for the kind of yeah. dynamic.
1: Because yeah. Well, because Christianity is the only true religion. Right. So that's the the freedom we need the religion right. for. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. Um, and we will use the powers that be. And so we need to be in the powers that be yeah. to get that going. So his second... Um, point to the definition of what Christian nationalism is, is that it is based on particular understandings of American history. In this view, the United States was established as an overtly Christian nation and therefore has an almost, and many drop the almost, covenantal relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Today, the narrative goes on, uh, the left and non-believers are trying to turn America into a secular relativistic nation. Unless we turn back to God and elect officials who will honor God, he will stop blessing America. David, have you seen any of this?
1: I have actually seen quite a bit of this. And, you know, it, um, reading, I haven't read the whole book, but reading this article by T- Keller or parts of it and reading the book parts of it, it just, it convinced me of the brilliance of Donald Trump and his campaign. For sure. The motto of make America great again fits just perfectly with this because it's, particular understanding of american history Mm -hmm. we were founded as a christian nation we have a covenantal relationship with god if we do his work he blesses us those on the left are trying to turn america into a secular relativistic nation and unless we turn back to god and elect officials who honor god he will stop blessing america i mean that's brilliant on donald trump's part right i mean because a lot of people
0: yeah yeah and you know it it, and his the point about bringing in the um, America as taking in the covenantal relationship with Israel, uh, which yeah. Keller gets to later on in his piece. Maybe we'll talk about it more there. But that's something you know. Um, you think of the prayer. Oh, I can't think of it. Is in Jeremiah or Deuteronomy. I'm bad with the Old Testament. If my people, if my people, Jeremiah, I think, yeah. will uh, who call on my name will repent and humbly pray and yeah. seek yeah. my face and turn from their yes. wicked
1: ways and I will heal their land. Yeah. And we claim that as a promise for right. America. Right. Yes.
0: Um, and so I think that's his point, like that kind of um, that kind of messaging mm-hmm. and understanding of what America's place is. So we got to keep rolling. The third point to the definition of Christian nationalism is that it is implicitly and sometimes explicitly committed to a specific social order in which the old hierarchies, native-born over foreigners, men over women, Christians over Jews and Muslims, whites over non-whites. Are reasserted and strengthened. Christian nationalism then provides a complex of explicit and implicit ideals, values, and myths, what we call a cultural framework through which Americans perceive and navigate their social world.
1: Yeah, and I, I think the key to this one is that um, if you read that to someone, nobody would affirm it. Well mm. what it's saying is that we're looking at the cultural frameworks through which Americans perceive and navigate the social world and we see that these things are evident. Right. That native born is preferred over foreigners, men are preferred over women, Christians and Jews over Muslims, whites over non-whites. These are the implicit things that are guiding our ideology even though if you ask someone to check the boxes that they, they would never right. say these things, right. right.
0: Kind of the the implicit underpinnings that yeah that shape how we think about the world. So they went on to research some, and their research was actually really fascinating. Let's talk about that for just a second. So first they break it down into that Christian nationalistic beliefs are on a spectrum, obviously. Mm -hmm. So they make four main orientations towards Christian nationalism. And so they say Americans are either rejectors, resistors, accommodators, or ambassadors. So like the most ardent Christian nationalist would be considered an ambassador. Yes. Um, The accommodators would not necessarily— Um, which maybe they go on to describe this then. But the ambassadors aren't necessarily um, prescribing Christian nationalism, but they are creating the environment in which Christian nationalism can survive and thrive.
1: Yeah. And that might be things like they mentioned, it was actually interesting at the very beginning of the book, they kind of open with this description of a worship service on July 4th, Mm -hmm. where the church is like decked out in American flags. The person performing the service is like in military garb. They're like praying prayers, but like substituting words for America. Mm-hmm. And so the people, well, that sounds pretty much ambassador, but maybe right, like if you go to a church like that, <laughs>
0: right? then you might be like, uh, what's the word? Yeah. Uh, well, I remember— um, David, Accommodator. Yeah. yeah, David French wrote a really good article. Um, it's been a couple months back, but in which he talked about two lies, and the one lie was the lie of Christian nationalism. Uh, but he said the other lie is the enabling lie for which Christian nationalism—which it sets the stage for Christian mm-hmm. nationalism to survive. And he basically identifies that enabling lie as something we'll talk about later, but he identifies it as a general culture which is so um, vehemently opposed to the other that it is willing to— in language, or Mm -hmm. it it could be in in, in whether how we talk about it, but it's not necessarily actions and we won't have flags flying from our American flags from the pulpit, whatever else, but the way we talk about the other creates the space for someone um, to extreme Mm -hmm. ends of that spectrum.
1: Yeah, I think there's more about that later. Yeah, Yeah. so we'll
0: get to that. Um, Okay. The last group, which was the accommodators, they hold some Christian nationalistic beliefs and are sympathetic to, if not fully embracing of Christian nationalism. And this is kind of what we were talking about, but in some ways the accommodators are key because they create an environment in which nearly a third of the population, while not holding to strong Christian nationalistic beliefs, provide sympathy and support to the more extreme adherents. Yeah. I thought that was really good. Um. Okay. We need to keep going. But there was an important distinction they made, I thought. Um, It said, okay, while 50% of Christian nationalists are evangelicals, nearly 25% of the strong resistors or rejectors are also evangelicals. So this shows that evangelical beliefs do not automatically cause Christian nationalism, which was a frustration I felt seeing some hot takes.
1: Oh, yeah, right. And isn't this why our churches are just— I mean getting torn apart and, and mm-hmm. family gatherings and all this kind of stuff. It's because right. just because you're evangelical, it, it doesn't determine whether or not you're you're all in on this so, this Christian nationalism thing. And and so this is something that people are really duking out in churches and pastors are having to figure out how to navigate is some of my people are down for this and some are not. And like, what sermon am I gonna preach on Sunday? And where do I stand? Yeah. Right. It's a
0: it's a difficult time being a pastor, this is for sure.
1: Um, so I want to move to this point. It's fourth. I think Keller made four points. If you're okay with just jumping down, yes. Um, Keller's fourth point is that Christian nationalism, to the degree to the degree it is influential, means the death of the Christian witness, and I think this is really important for us to mm-hmm. to look at. Um, he writes the ethos the ethos of the Christian nationalism is to not in any way try to persuade win, or evangelize their opponents. Their attitude toward unbelievers is, they are evil. What does their opinion matter? Sure, they hate you, but just hate them right back. Own the libs. Mm -hmm. The motivation of witness, a desire to see all people come to know Christ, has been completely eradicated in Christian nationalism, which which proves that it is not ultimately a religious movement at all, just one more political movement using the power of religious language. And I, I think...
0: Yeah, that point Yeah, was I, I, fantastic. The
1: power, the political movement using the power of religious language. I mean, I think we've seen that mm. so, so much um, just really in the re- recent past. And it's just this, in my opinion, watering down or just ultimately fizzling out of Christianity. When it becomes united to political forces, it just mm. loses anything that it's even good for.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, we've mentioned Russell Moore many times, but he—, he Summarize it quite aptly as just means to end Christianity. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, which is, I think, a really succinct way of summarizing it. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a lot more really good stuff in this article. Go check it out. But I was fascinated with his um, conclusion on, on the matter about what it's going to mean then as you... Um, if, if you decide to stand against the flow of Christian nationalism, and in fact, if you not just stand against the extreme forms, but in fact, if you do your best to not create any kind of environment that could accommodate mm-hmm. any kind of extreme forms of Christian nationalism. Um, but this means, in these are Keller's words, he says, this means that believers who maintain historic Christian orthodoxy and who strongly resist Christian nationalism will often take fire on more than one front and so we may even more than Christian nationalists find ourselves feeling homeless not acceptable in our own culture mm-hmm. I thought that was really really good um, because a lot of his point in this article in which he says that if we're truly um, if we're truly living out the teachings of the old and New Testament it would create us to be a people who's concerned about matters of justice of the poor of the Mm -hmm. oppressed of um, racial oppression Um, but then he says it would also it would also lead you to affirm um, traditional views on sex and sexuality Mm -hmm. um, with uh, marriage for one man one woman Mm -hmm. and for sex being confined to the marriage bed Um, and he says so that's why he says those who maintain historic christian orthodoxy um, and who resist Christian nationalism will take fire on more than one front. <laughs> right? Because um, you're going to get it from the, the
1: hardcore conservatives and you're going to get it from more progressive people
0: too. Yeah. Right. And I think it was him that also made um, the point too that he's like, if you're ever, if you as a Christian are in an environment where you're always affirmed or always um, like um, lambasted, he said something's wrong um, probably about, Your witness, because you should be not only being, which I think I get what he's saying, but at the same time, I mean, in not every context does that work. But if you are being ridiculed, there's also going to be the people that are going to be pouring into you and encouraging you for doing the right thing. And you'll feel that tension, hopefully. Um, So I think that was kind of his, one of his, another one of his points there. Um, But yeah, I thought that was a really good, really good article.
1: Yeah, I think, was it the last one he wrote or a couple of ones back was about critical race? Theory? Yeah, I think that was the CRT. last one or two back. I yeah, think I, I didn't actually read that report, but I, I heard a lot of talk about it. I think it's really cool that he does one quarterly. He just mm-hmm. kind of, it's kind of a way of, as a pastor, of, of keeping up with what's going on is, you know, I'm engaging yeah. in quarterly what's happening and then responding to it. I think that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, because I've, and like, they're really well written. Um, they're they're a little bit longer. They take, you to chunk out a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he just, he'll, it doesn't matter what the topic is. He'll bite off a big chunk and, and he's, he's just, he's a brilliant mind. I have lots of respect for, for Tim Keller.
1: Oh yeah. I also just remembered a few. Well, do, do you want to do the deconstruction thing? Um, maybe we should save that we can talk about more of my issues. Let's what? talk about more of your <laughs>
0: issues. <laughs> Sounds fun. Do you
1: have a couch jacket layout? lay on? Okay. Uh,
0: Bring your issues to me.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, eschatology. No, yeah. Explain a preferred approach to reading the book of Revelation in terms of the standard views for – no, not that one. Oh, explain a preferred millennial view. So, yeah. I think I'm going to go with the amillennial view. Is that okay? <laughs> I think it is. Are there any hair tech bells going yeah, on? Yeah, right. <laughs> From what I've heard, you can do this, and it's okay. Yeah. But the, the <laughs> millennial View, <laughs> I know, it's like, did I cross any really bad lines? Put that in your Statement of Faith. I think this one's good. Yeah. So, according to me in my Statement of Faith, the millennial View is the preferred reading of the Thousand Years Reference in Revelation. This Johannine writing is apocalyptic and carried forward by symbolic imagery employed to describe events and persons. The Millennium is best read symbolically, referring from the time to the establishment of the church to the parousia. Right. This is the most faithful, consistent reading of the text. My favorite thing about this statement of faith is that even when you're really not sure, you say you just, it strong, <laughs> you just write voice of God like this is the way it is. Yeah. This is the most faithful way to read. Yeah. So but, um yeah. So the amillennial position like the is the that church. there is no yeah. millennium. Like we are
0: in the millennium now. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. When yeah. I looked at the three, that one just made the most sense to me. Yeah.
0: If it if it helps, I have uh, waffled through all three in my lifetime. So. Wow. Um, cause I, from I what I hear, you really don't want to take the post-millennial
1: view anymore? That's well, it really, kind of depends,
0: because nah. uh, post-millennialism, well, post-millennialism got caught up in colonialism it um, yeah. led to some really, not really so awful things. But I also know some thinkers who I would have a lot of respect for who would be post millennial. Really? Yeah. Interesting. The presentation in class made it sound like no one thinks this
1: way anymore, but he yeah. also was a bit dogmatic on some of his yeah. points. So, interesting.
0: So I think definitely the one that has been—definitely um, the one held mostly currently would be premillennialism. Yeah. More like dispensational premillennialism. Can but,
1: I can I just—not soapbox, but just just talk for a minute here. This is like—I'm not looking to go into, like, pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. but if you were, like, this would be really stressful because to be hired here at Tocco Falls College, you have to have the premillennial view. That's part yeah. of the—what um. What conference is this? Christian Uh, Missionary Alliance. The Christian Missionary Alliance. Like, you have to sign a paper. I hold the premillennial view. I thought they did away with that. No, I think people really wish they would. And so, like, there are these things that it's like, it's not only do I actually believe this, but it's like, depending on where I'm hoping to head in life, I do believe it now. Because I have no other choice. Well, and especially
0: was a thing from, like, talking with my parents' generation. Like, they talked of, like, that was on church covenants. I mean, it was everywhere. It was premillennialism, premillennialism, hmm. um, where you had to sign off on it. Yeah, um,
1: and it's like, so it's kind of died I off. Mean, I, think, I don't know anyone bit, in, in our Bible and theology department who would die on that hill, or who would say, right. if you disagree with me, like you're for sure wrong. In fact, they I'm not, not even like, sure all
0: of them would actually be
1: premillennial. Well, they signed a paper that said they were, so they better be. <laughs> Maybe they changed after they got hired. <laughs> <laughs> you know how beliefs merge. You know, yeah, or like they'll just a lot of caveats. Yeah, um, and then man. What is meant by the following terms? Hell. So I'm working on a definition of hell. And then this one is this one's tough. Explain the fate of the unsaved and hell. And then in parentheses, annihilationism, eternal conscious torment, and universal salvation, etc. I've really labored over this one, man. And you wouldn't know from my three lines that I have written here. <laughs> I was gonna take annihilation. But the more I've talked to people and the more I've read, I just, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. So, I don't know. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis takes a more, like, eternal conscious torment, but, like, less emphasis on the conscious
0: torment and more on the eternal separation. Because that, cause his thing, from the way I understand it, it was kind of like, whether they end up ceasing to exist or not is not really the question, like... The bottom line is that they are going to be in a eternal state where they have locked their souls from God, basically. So yeah, they, hell
1: is locked from the inside. Right. Like they don't want to come out.
0: Right. And then that just, as yeah. they get further and further removed from any image-bearing qualities, because uh-huh. those would be good, as they lose those over time, they eventually would just cease to exist. Okay. So he actually—I I think he would have— That's not really the image of being annihilated. That's just more the image of, like, wasting away. Well, I think that's why, from what I understand of annihilationists, there's actually a distinction within that camp. You have annihilationists and then conditional immortality. Oh. um, See, mm, it's it's just so hard being so ignorant and not knowing, but that sounds right to me, conditional
1: immortality, but (laughs) I I don't know. Okay, we don't have a lot of time for all of these. (laughs) Ah. should women serve in pastoral elder or other church leadership roles in
0: the church explain ask uh, who was it laura the carrot
1: laura the carrot yeah. is starting to believe that they can <laughs> and so am i <laughs> don't tell anyone <laughs> yeah so i think i'm gonna go egalitarian on that one um there was another one okay oh, yeah, and this is the one i was talking to a professor today for like 20 minutes Is it possible to be saved apart from the explicit knowledge of and faith in Jesus Christ? Explain. There's just like so much baked into that. So can you be saved apart from explicit knowledge of and faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, obviously, because David and Moses and Abraham never knew the name of Jesus. Right. So you can be saved without faith and knowledge of Jesus. But I mean, I think what the question is driving at is now, (laughs) can you be saved that explicit knowledge of you. So I was having this conversation because okay like in Paul's letters he seems pretty clear that
0: general revelation is enough to condemn right. you. Like, like when he says like no one is without excuse. No one is what without is it? excuse or maybe. Right. Yeah.
1: But then he also says like how shall they believe if no one tells them and how right. shall someone tell them if God does not send them and
0: there's just it seems like that tension's baked into the text. Five itself. linked yeah. chain. <sighs> it's really tough. So I'm not really sure and what even is saving faith that's baked into it, too? Um, yeah, is it just assent to um, acknowledgement of, you know, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ, which yeah, I what, definitely not. That's but, another
1: thing we have to do, d- d- distinguish between faith and belief. Right. But um, I've heard two professors reference this now, and I've never read all of the Chronicles of Narnia, but apparently mm. Lewis, I think it's in The Last Battle, you can help me where I'm fuzzy on the story, but like they kind of go too. to the next world. Yeah. And there's people there in the next world who weren't fighting on the good guy's team, which is kind of surprising. And it's kind of Lewis making an argument, I think, that even though they weren't on the Aslan side, right. they never knew Aslan, they're still there because of something about their posture yeah. or their acknowledgement of their own depravity. Somehow they're right. still there.
0: Which this definitely has echoes of Jesus' teaching about the surprising nature of judgment with, you know, the wheat and the, the chaff. chaff, you know, like um it's not for you to separate those because at the end of the time we we'll separated. And right now you actually can't really distinguish. I was briefly considering chaff. when I have to defend this, be like,
1: you know, the Lord
0: tells us not to judge. It's
1: really not my place to say who gets saved and who doesn't. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's the direction I'm leaning is that you don't have to have explicit knowledge of faith in Christ.
0: Right. Which for Lewis, like we just said, we just mentioned it, that for him hell is locked from the inside. Yeah. So it's when... I think it's kind of along the lines of where you have oriented your whole life to where um, even if you profess belief in Christ, your posture of your heart or your loves or desires have so turned away from Christ that when you see him, yeah, but I mean, you do not even want to uh, be. You, you, when you see him. When you see him, right. your desire, you realize like that's why judgment is terrifying because kind of in James K. A. Smith's words, you might not love what you think you love. And you actually find out you've loved something else, mm. even while professing uh, intellectual assent okay. to right. believing in Christ. So you said you believe in God, but
1: it turns out you actually didn't. Right. So kind of the inverse of that would be there might be people who have never heard the name of Jesus. But when we get to the judgment, they're not held guilty because of the way they oriented themselves. They kind of right. did believe in God right. or something, even though they never kind heard of Kind of that general revelation range kind of thing yeah the way my one professor put it and it's just it's just so hard for me is like general revelation is enough to come to saving faith but because of our sin we have scales over our eyes and we don't we're not able to see it (laughs) so yes it is enough but no we're not really able to see it and acknowledge christ like well that's fascinating hard yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe i got that wrong but i think that's what he was saying huh that that's an option, right? And then you can also just take the universalist route. It's right. like, well, Christ's death is enough for everybody. And so regardless of whether or not you acknowledge it, you are forgiven and you live in a world that's been come to by the incarnated Jesus right. and he died for you. And so there's you're even,
0: saved. there's differences within the universal camp. Yeah. Too because there's the one vision that's just kind of like you're I guess kind of sins are forgiven, come on in kind of approach. But then there's another one where it's like Kind of in lieu of, I think it's First Corinthians seven, where it talks of like we all go through, believers, non-believers go through, um, calls like the fire of God's judgment, I believe, kind of a purifying, fire, yeah, not an and, annihilating and fire. And so like Paul's just like, hey, and some of you are basically gonna make it by the skin of your teeth, but be glad because at least you made it, kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, because I remember when I read it for the first time, I was like whoa, wait, what? <laughs> even believers go through this fire. Mm. Um, according to, I think it's First Corinthians 7. You'll have to check me on that. But, man, fascinating stuff.
1: Yeah, and then I, I won't even get into this. But then um, let's see how they phrase the question. Explain the following terms and their significance in salvation. And you got predestination and election. <laughs> oh, boy. So I, I had, you know, if I can toot my own horn i love my little caveat here those who are unbelieving can if drawn by the spirit <laughs> cross the line from non-elect to elect and become part of spiritual israel <laughs> so who the spirit will draw no nice. one knows but you can cross the line that's mm-hmm. the way i'm So i'm gonna take an arminian position on yeah it. yeah yeah. Mm. yeah it's been good though i mean it really is if nothing else just to be aware of what what the arguments are right. and take a position and you know change your mind later if you need to it's not like you're set in stone or change your mind later if you need to get a job i guess
0: and there's definitely i mean like even within these issues there's definitely um, a level of an importance um, first second right. and tertiary as we've yeah, talked about absolutely. before It's important um, not all those things are of first importance yeah. some are though yeah um, some are some are creedal and and should not be and could not be changed absolutely if they want to be part of the historic christian faith Okay,
1: all fun stuff. I think that's all the time we have for today. Don't forget this to do the um, yeah. Don't forget to do the March Madness bracket. Um, maybe maybe I'll release this tonight if I have time. There you go. I don't know if that'll actually help anyone, but yeah, enter a bracket and take comfort in the fact that you have a pretty high chance of winning, and try to win yourself something.
0: Also, as always, we really appreciate it when you rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Or even just leave a comment on Facebook or Instagram. We are very grateful for those. And uh, with that said, we hope you have a great week.